Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Ruppold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. Uh, thank you for sharing the show with a friend, liking it, thumbs up, stars, reviews, all those things help to get this out to more people. And for that, I truly appreciate it. So, we will continue uh, with our study of Lex Rex, and actually, um, we're on the very last chapter of the book. But before we do that, we have our law of the day. And that law, if you want to follow along in your copy of Scripture, is Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and, though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, when we look at this law, there are a couple parallel passages, parallel laws to it from the book of Exodus. The first is Exodus 21.15, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. And the second is in verse 17, which mentions whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death. And last time we did look at cursing and what it meant to curse somebody in the ancient Near Eastern context. But this law is more focused on the irresponsible and rebellious son. Now, we have to remember that even though this law seems a bit uh, extreme to our 21st century ears, we have to understand that the family is the primary authority structure ordained by God. And like rulers, parents represent um, God's rule and God's presence on earth in, in a sense. Because they model authority to their children, and um, they disciple and teach their children. So, in a sense, a child's view of God is going to be modeled and shaped by their parents, by the view their view of their parents. Now, in this particular passage, the picture that is presented to us is of a totally rebellious youth, and interestingly. The context of the law has it that the father and mother shall take hold of the son and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. So it seems that the son does live maybe in another town. Um, Whatever the case may be, the son is not a child. The son has the ability to become stubborn, rebellious, gluttonous, and a drunkard. And in, in this situation, we have to have in our minds the picture of a, at least a teenage young man who can and should be able to function on his own. Perhaps uh, he does live uh, with his parents, and a lot of times um, sons would stay in their father's house, even when they got married. They would uh, get married, uh, prepare a place for their bride by um, adding an addition to the son's father's house so the so that the woman would come back to the father's house. And they would live uh, in close community there. So either way, what we're seeing is not a young toddler or a preteen. We're not seeing a neglected child. 
this, the text specifically says that they disciplined this child, this person, and yet they continue to um, act in rebellion. And this is a son who refuses to respond with submission to parents. Now, we have to understand that not only is the family the primary authority structure, but the family prepares the child for society. If the family fails to do this, the society will feel the effects of an irresponsible and a rebellious child. A person who has no respect for their parents will probably not have respect for the rulers in that society. And it's only going to lead to damage and destruction within the community. So it is in the society's best interest for the family to succeed and to thrive. So under this law, the family warns the civil magistrate who then takes action. So it's not, it's not that the government sees a problem and then decides to intervene unilaterally without any action on the part of the parents. No, here the parents are the ones initiating the charges against, against their son. They bring the issue forward to the magistrate, and they are witnesses uh, against the youth. Now, they're not the ones that actually put the youth to death because the family does not have the ability to wield the sword. God has not given the sword to the family authority. He's given it to the state, to the civil magistrate. So the parents serve only as, as witnesses. And once that charge is established and proven, the society, the civil magistrate, executes the individual. And this is done both as a deterrent and to protect society, because the law even says, you shall purge the evil from your midst. So there's a protection of society concept being being displayed there. And then, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So there you have the deterrent aspect of this law. So let's bring this to application. We see today that the family does remain the primary authority structure in society. Parents are to train up their children in the Lord. And if a child continues in rebellion, the parents should seek outside help. They should seek church leadership. They should seek counseling. Whatever it takes along the way to teach and encourage the child to become submissive, responsible, not a detriment to society. But if all efforts fail, there is still a place today for the civil magistrate to step in. But again, scripture is clear that it is the family that asks for help or that brings the issue up to the civil magistrate. It is not the civil magistrate taking authority away from the family. Now, the family is basically saying they cannot do this on their own. They've, they've reached a point where they can do no more. And scripture is clear that there is a limit to giving chances. And I know in our society, we don't like that. We, we like to give people second, third, fourth, fifth chances, whatever the case may be. But at some point, rebellious and incorrigible youth have to be dealt with. At some point, the state must step in to protect the greater society and to deter that kind of rebellious behavior. Because the last thing that the society wants is a criminal. And the parents are basically saying, this child is going to be a criminal if he's not already, do something about it. Now, the Bible is clear that the death penalty does need to be applied, not prison. And there's a place for young adults, for youths, to be tried as adults. And we have that in our own society. We just, we don't really administer a death penalty anymore. 
We just simply send people to jail, to prison. And that's the problem with the correctional facilities concept. The correctional facilities assume that they actually bring correction. But that's not the state's role or duty. It's not the magistrate's role to, to change the heart of, of a person and to reform them. The damage done to society is too high in these cases. And the state's job is to bear the sword. And it's clear that the parents should be a witness to it. They're the ones that initiate it. And the only reason that the state should get involved without the parents' consent is if a crime is committed, such as theft, such as murder, things like that. Now, sadly, our culture is going away from not only, of course, the death penalty, which is a, a topic for another time, but um, we're going away from that, and that is against Scripture. But we're also going away from holding people responsible for their behavior, especially young adults. And it's due to a change in our beliefs. It's due to a change in our philosophy. Primarily, it's due to evolutionary theory. And I think the best way to explain it is a quote from Rusus Rushduni, who was a biblical scholar and theologian from the mid-1900s. And he wrote a book called Institutes of Biblical Law. It's a three-volume set, very extensive, of course, and in-depth, but a very wonderful read for those who are interested. But here's what he says regarding the idea of responsibility. Quote, Responsibility, guilt, and punishment are inseparable in law. Where there is responsibility for an offense, there is guilt, and there also punishment or penalties must be applied. Today, this doctrine of individual responsibility has been undercut by the theory of evolution. Basic to evolutionary theory is environmentalism. Man is a product of his environment and has evolved in relationship to a changing environment and its actions upon him. As a result, not only is man a product of his environment, but he is also a creature of his environment rather than of God. Man is what an evolving world has made of him, and man's actions are a product of that environment and its molding of man. This means that the guilt for man's actions rests with his environment, his social and personal world, and it is this world which is punished when man sins. Thus, society is blamed for the conduct of delinquents and criminals, and parents for the sins of their children. Punishment then falls on society and on parents. In such a scheme of things, the lawless are absolved of guilt, and the guilty are made innocent." End quote. I think that quote sums up the situation quite nicely in our culture. That a lot of times we just say that it's not the person's fault. We're always trying to absolve people from responsibility. You know, he, he's just a boy, or that's what kids do, or he had a hard life, um, things like that. And don't get me wrong, there, there is a place for the idea that, that an adult would lead someone into sin. That, um, you know, Jesus even says, woe to those who cause others to stumble, who cause people to sin. And of course, those people should be held accountable for their sin. But we've gone too far in society where we have explained away all misbehavior as, well, they're just poor, or they had a hard life growing up, he has a drug problem, da 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 da. All these things are being used to take responsibility away from people because the assumption is that we're just a product of our environment. That's it. 
And if you hold evolutionary theory, that's, that is the natural consequence of it. That is the logical conclusion. There is no God. There is no image of God. And a person is just a product of their genetics and their environment. And so it's not really their fault. So that is our law of the day. Uh, there's much more that could be said on that, but I want to get now to our last chapter of Lex Rex. The law is king, chapter 22. For those of you just tuning in, I encourage you to go back and listen to the other uh, sections on Lex Rex um, since this book was so influential to the founding of the American Republic and written by a devout Christian Puritan man in the 1600s, a man who actually got imprisoned for writing this book, by the way, and would have been executed by the state, but he died of natural causes before he could be executed. So in this chapter, Samuel Rutherford, the author, finishes the book by asking this question, how is the government accountable to the people? And he begins by quoting from Aristotle. And this is what Aristotle says regarding knowing the difference between a tyrant and a good ruler. Quote, a tyrant seeks only his own good, while a legitimate ruler seeks the good of the people. End quote. And Rutherford affirms this truth and shows how this is how a ruler is held accountable. Because the office of ruler is that of a covenant. There's a covenant or a contract, if you will, uh, between the ruler and those who are being ruled. And no matter how superior a ruler might be over the people, a covenant does exist. The people, on the one hand, are obligated to submit to the ruler. But on the other hand, the ruler is obligated to serve and to serve as a leader well. And each side holds the other accountable for their obligations. Of course, if, if the ruler is doing things right and the people disobey, that person who breaks the law should be punished. And anyone who commits treason should be dealt with. But at the same time, if the ruler disobeys and breaks the law and becomes a tyrant, then the people should hold that ruler accountable. And of course, this is the origin for the concept of voting, the foundation for it, because voting is the act of holding someone accountable, holding a ruler accountable. And if you don't like what they're doing, they're doing something wrong, you can vote them out of office. But even outside of democracies, um, the covenant concept and idea of accountability exists in monarchies and dictatorships. There's always a covenant. There was a covenant between God and the people of Israel when Moses was on Mount Sinai and the people said, all this we will do when they were asked if they will obey the covenant and Moses sprinkles the blood upon them. So even God established a covenant with his people willingly. And there was a covenant between King David and the people of Israel. They anointed him as king, even though God had chosen and selected him. There is something going on there between all the parties involved. And so when the rulers break covenant with the people, the people are no longer obligated to obey that ruler, especially in the area that the ruler is either sinning or causing them to sin. But keep this in mind, and, and Rutherford is, is clear on this. He says, quote, this should not be undertaken for frivolous or petty reasons. Every abuse of power does not automatically disqualify a ruler or make a government illegitimate. The people should use their power only after repeated and systematic abuses, end quote. So he's clear, we're not to be quick 
to just disobey because we see one mistake in the ruler. Not at all. There needs to be a repeated and systemic abuse that is ongoing and that is pretty, pretty bad, pretty heinous. But he makes it also clear that no one is by nature born to be the ruler and no one is by nature born to be ruled. And he says, quote, using the people as his means, God makes rulers and dethrones them, end quote. And this is important. The people possess an innate power to select their leaders because that's how it all came about in the beginning anyways. Uh, a people, a community come together and they choose or they agree to uh, some kind of a ruler over them. So they have the power to select their leaders. As God even says to Israel, when you select or ordain a king over you, they have to follow these rules on, on the process of choosing a king. And Rutherford describes it using the metaphor of a fountain. Here's what he says, quote, As water proceeds from a fountain, so the power to rule originates from the people. A man is not ruler due to personal endowments that transcend the choice of the people. Although the talents of ruling well are gifts from God in nature, nurtured by experience and education, the office of ruler only comes by the mediation and the free consent of the people. The people possess the power, authority, and legitimacy to rule in themselves as a fountain, and they confer it on whoever they wish in a manner consistent with their wishes. End quote. So it's important to see here that God uses people as a means to accomplish his purposes. Just like God uses the church to make disciples of all nations and to baptize and to teach, we would affirm that on the one hand, but we would also affirm that it is God who's growing his kingdom, it's God who's building up his church, and it's God who saves people, opens their eyes. That's all God. That's the Holy Spirit. But God is choosing to use the people of the church, his people, to accomplish it. Could God theoretically do it all himself without the church? Yes, he could. But he has chosen to work in and through his people to accomplish his purposes. And the same is true with government. God turns the heart of the king as he wishes. God leads and, and moves people to vote a certain way. God is in complete control over the decisions of all the people on the planet. And God uses people as a means to create rulers and to dethrone rulers. And so in a sense, we can agree that the people possess the power and authority to, to establish rulers. It flows out of them like a fountain, even though God is in complete control of all that is happening and what ends up happening as a result. So we have to keep both in mind here. It is not, we're not denying God's power to ordain and establish governments by saying that, that it's through the consent of the people, through the consent of the governed. It's, it's always been through the consent of the governed. It's just God is the one that moves people to consent one way or the other. Even in tyrannies, the people consent even if they don't like it. They still choose in their silence and their compliance to be ruled by someone like a Stalin or a Kim Jong-un or whatever the case may be. Because um, at the end of the day, th those people have decided that silence and being compliant and submissive is the preferred way to go. That it's not yet worth 
overthrowing that ruler or disobeying them. It's not yet worth it. And un until they believe it is worth it, they will continue to live as slaves to those in authority. So let me get some concluding thoughts on the book uh, Lex Rex here. First of all, there is some important application for today. Now, there's always going to be a level of subjectivity when we're talking about resisting government. There's no, there's no mathematical equation to say that, oh, now is the time to resist a ruler. They've met the criteria for tyrant, and now we can disobey, or now we can select a new ruler. But that being said, there are still signs to watch out for, and they usually go together. They don't, you won't just see one sign and not the others. But here just are just a few signs. First of all, a sign of tyranny is an increasing level of corruption and self-serving actions by leaders. You also see an increasing uh, establishment of arbitrary rules and knee-jerk reactions. Not, not really anything grounded in morality or eternal truths. You see an unequal application of the law, the playing of favorites. Some people... Some people are more equal than others, right? You see authority being stolen from other spheres. The government is stealing authority from the family or from the church or responsibility from the individual. You see an unwillingness to repent of wicked and unjust laws and sinful laws and sinful actions on the part of the government. No, no ability to um, admit when they're wrong or admit when they have sinned or passed a wicked law. And then you see an increasing uh, denial of God and the government setting themselves up in the place of God as the ultimate authority in the land. Now, when that happens, when these signs happen, then our duty as, as Christian citizens is to take the next step, is to hold them accountable for, for what they've done, as good citizens should do. We don't just be yes men and, and, and roll over and submit and become you know, slaves to the government. That's not a good citizen. That's a very bad citizen. A good citizen, per the covenant, holds their rulers accountable for their actions. And what, what does that mean then? Well, petition. We have to petition. We have to call our wicked rulers to repent. And we also have to call for the lesser magistrates to intervene and to help us, to help do the right thing, to help restrain the wicked rulers. Now, in the meantime, if we're being commanded to violate God's law in any way, we don't comply with that. Or if they're prohibiting us from obeying God's laws. Again, we continue to serve God rather than men. If our petitions don't work and nothing seems to, to, to change, our lesser magistrates don't help us or, or no one listens to us, then we need to flee. We need to find a place of peace, security, and stability that we can go to. And we can go to that place and explain to the new rulers why we have fled there. We need to ask the rulers in that new place to protect us and to continue to provide a place of peace and to make good and just laws. And if that fails, then fighting is only to be done as a last resort. Now, as private citizens, the situations where we would fight as individual private citizens are going to be pretty slim because God is not in favor of anarchy and mob rule. But one example, perhaps, of, of, a, of a private individual resisting and fighting against the government would be the enforcement of some kind of one-child policy like they had in China. 
So if the police are coming to your door, they found out that your wife is pregnant, you already have one child, and they're going to come to give her a forced abortion, okay, or take your child and just steal your child away and maybe give it up for adoption, you have a duty as a, as a father to resist that, to protect your child and not let the government murder your child. And that would be a case where um, resistance is perfectly legitimate if you can't get out of there, if you can't save your family and, and run away. But now, if you are a lesser magistrate, if you have some power in the government, maybe you're not the ultimate ruler, but you're a mayor, you're or your governor, uh, your representative, a senator, the situations in, that involve you fighting are going to be actually more because the community as a whole can't flee from the tyrant. And in fact, if you were to flee, you'd be advocating your authority and basically throwing your people under the bus, the people that you represent, the people that you're to protect. So uh, a lesser magistrate should in, uh, should raise a militia and organize them to defend the town, defend the community. They should be using that power defensively to shield the people from the tyrant. Now, of course, if no lesser magistrates are available to help, and they've been killed or they ran away or they've all been compromised, then I, do, I would say that private citizens, they should not become a mob, but they could establish new magistrates to represent them. It could be as simple as, as calling a town meeting or calling a meeting of the people on your street, inviting all your neighbors to, to come together and to make a decision to protect your street if, something, if, if things have gotten that bad. Electing someone to organize and lead the town temporarily, and that person might organize the defense of the street, defense of the town with a militia. But in all cases, it's never a mob. It's always, it's always organized, it's always structured, it's always grassroots in a way. Because mobs and vigilantes are never acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. So, as we end this, this brief analysis of Lex Rex, in the United States, to bring it to a modern example, we have many lesser magistrates. We have many opportunities for petition. We also have open borders among the states. So we have, we have ways we can flee and places to flee too. We can still run for office locally and seek to make a difference there, right? And we're not yet at the point of fighting. Although, I would say that there are probably some lesser magistrates that should prepare for it. Because their job is to, as the, as the central government increases in power and in firmness, and I would say in, in tyrannical behavior, we need lesser magistrates to stand up to that and to prepare for that. For example, um, there are lesser magistrates that should protect uh, the unborn babies in our in our society. We have sanctuary cities, right, that protect uh, illegal immigrants from the hands of the federal government. So we have the we have we have people in our culture who are brave enough to stand up for you know marijuana use. It's still illegal federally, but states and towns have legalized marijuana and have ignored the federal government completely on the matter of of illegal immigrants and on the matter of uh, marijuana usage. So we need some brave magistrates who will do the same thing for the unborn, to end abortion. We need lesser magistrates to do the same thing regarding masks and vaccines and restrictions, to let people live their lives. And magistrates can do this. They have the ability to do this, so they could do it for righteous causes, if they so choose. 
So that's where we're at, I think, in our current example of the United States. It's not yet time for private resistance, um, anything like that at all, and definitely not ever a time for anarchy, for mobs, uh, or anything like that. It needs to be done with order and with civility. And it needs to be done through, like I said, grassroots, through the local local community, local government. And we need to continue to petition uh, our magistrates and ask them to repent of the wickedness that they're doing or that they're allowing and to step in and protect us and, and do the right thing for their people. So anyways, I hope that you found this study of Lex Rex to be useful I encourage you to pick up that book when you get the chance and just uh, join me again next time as we continue uh, looking at law and government from a biblical perspective. So thank you again for tuning in. Uh, If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook, Twitter, all those places you can find uh, Just Governed by God and uh, submit any questions that you have there, any topics that you'd like me to address in future episodes. So until then, take care and...